You know, I was at a <clears throat> meeting with pastors this week, and one of the conversation pieces was, well, how are you going to celebrate Mother's Day? I said, I'm going to read the everlasting gospel because I don't know a mother in my church that wouldn't want their family to live according to that. There is no better Mother's Day present than for us to live the gospel. So here it is. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves, just as He is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does not is sinful. And is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. For this is the message you have heard from the very beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a, is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and receive from Him before anything we ask, because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is what His command is His command, to believe in the name of the Son, of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. This is the word of God for this day, and frankly for every single day. Cherish it in your heart. Allow it to grow up in you. And you will be both your mother and your heavenly father's dream child. Let us pray. Oh, my God.
As we come to worship this morning, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for all of those that have nourished us and nurtured us. And we thank you, Lord, for their presence in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for, for those that are mothering today. And we thank you, Lord, for those that we remember that have passed on to the church eternal. So many of these today and so many of those in our past have taught us the way that leads to life eternal. And so we could know no better example than that. So thank you, Jesus. This morning, Lord, we ask your blessing on Keith who comes to forward to preach now. Allow your spirit to reside in him and flow forth from him to us that we might know you more fruitfully and fully and that we might endeavor to live after you with all of our, our days. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. As you see in our, uh, our sign up here, last week we looked at John's writings in sort of our this or that sermon series. And last week, Pastor Mike talked to us about how John encourages us to seek after that which is permanent, not which is transitory. The week before that, we talked about the love of God, the agape love of God, versus the filio love of, God, of, of the world. And today, we are basically looking at a fastball right down the plate from John, talking about sin and righteousness. And he makes it very clear what his, what his motive was in this text. And as we look, we have to remember the context of John's writing. He's writing in the first century church, to the next generation of Christians, and he's writing them in the midst of others who were coming to them, trying to lead them astray. And one of the things, as you see, as John writes, you can sort of pick out the things that he's writing against. And one of the things is that following Jesus isn't just a one-time decision. He, he constantly talks about how the faith is something that you must remain in. And, and as we read last week, there were those trying to lead the church astray by first denying the divinity of Jesus. That's where all that Antichrist stuff came from last week, that those who deny Christ, Jesus come in the flesh, are, are Antichrists. And, and John is saying that once the divinity of Jesus is denied, then his commandments and his teachings become subject to humans. And this was already happening in the first century. There were various groups coming into the church and teachings that were contrary to what Jesus had told his disciples and had them pass on. For, for example, you, and you can see these in the scriptures. If you read the book of Galatians, you see that the Apostle Paul is dealing with a group of people he calls the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were telling non-Jewish converts to Christianity that before they could come to know Jesus, they had to first submit themselves to all of the Jewish laws. Because, think about it, if Christianity is, is a derivative of Judaism, or the fulfillment of Judaism, what do you do with the people that aren't Jews? And there was a big controversy over how to deal with those people. And some were saying that, oh, well, they just have faith in Jesus, and that's fine. Others were saying, no, they must be uh, subject to the to the, the Hebrew dietary laws and to the Sabbath observances and to the, the circumcision rituals. And, of course, there were lots of different controversies and conversations about that. And, you know, 
the church dealt with that. They, they dealt with that by pointing out that these laws served to set apart God's people in the Old Testament from the pagan nations that surrounded them, but they also served as a, a, a pointing to of the Messiah. And the early Christians recognized that as Jesus came as the Messiah, He fulfilled those, those laws. And they were under a new covenant, not the old covenant. So there were all sorts of ramifications of that. Well, not long after that, there was another group that came along and were teaching things that were contrary to what Jesus taught and His disciples taught. And one of the things they taught was that Jesus wasn't really God. They taught that Jesus was just a, a, an enlightened human being. And, and they brought their, their knowledge and, and they called their heresy the Gnostic heresy. Of course, they didn't call it heresy. The church called it heresy. They believed that salvation came because you knew the right stuff. And there's a lot to learn about early heresies in the Christian world and how the church deals with it. But that, that creed that we said earlier this morning, if you look at that creed, you see it's really, it's really all about the nature of Christ, isn't it? That's because those creeds were developed as a way to combat the, the erroneous teaching that was cropping up. And you can see John was doing that here in these texts. So what is he talking about today for us? Basically, what he's dealing with is the idea between sin and righteousness. And what John wants the Christians to understand, this next generation of Christians, is to understand that being a Christian isn't just about what you know. It's about your life and how it's lived. And John isn't, though, just saying, all right, everybody has to be really good people. He's saying that to be a Christian starts with having the right understanding about who God is. And he says that he knows this because he heard it from God himself. He heard it from Jesus. And therefore, what he says is true. So the bottom line for this old man writing to the next generation of Christians is sin or righteousness. This or that. And here's how he lays that out. Number one. He says this, theology drives behavior. If you notice that, that, that John very emphatically declares that what you believe about God is what's going to lead to what you do. He's writing to this next generation of Christians to warn them not to be led astray by abandoning their faith. And it's interesting that he emphasizes here that falling away from the correct understanding, the correct theology about God. Theology just means knowledge of God. He says if you lose that, then eventually your life is going to fall into sin. He warns against sin by affirming that true Christian belief is followed by a holy life, whereas false belief about Jesus leads to sin. Think about that. If you believe that Jesus really is God, then you believe that He has authority to teach and command all of His children in the lives that they should live. This belief leads to obedience, and John's making that crystal clear. But what happens if you don't have the right theology? What happens if you throw out this idea that Jesus is God as these early people were coming into the church trying to lead them astray? He says, basically, if you do that, then the authority is gone and Jesus just becomes another 
voice in a crowded world of religious and moral teachers. So number one, keep your theology aligned with what Jesus taught. Number two, John wants you to recognize that keeping the faith is just as important as getting it. He makes that point over and over and over. It's kind of like the idea of, of, you know, getting the job that you always wanted and, and then deciding that just because you got the job that you're done. So you don't have to go anymore. Can you imagine that? You get all excited, you got your job, you went through the interview, you submitted your stuff, you, you, you got the call that you're hired. It's like, excellent, I'm hired, I got the job I always wanted. But after a couple of weeks, you decide, well, okay, I already did that. Well, I bet your paycheck would stop showing up as soon as you stop showing up, right? Because getting a job is just the beginning of, of, of what you're after, right? Because your reward when you have your job ultimately is your, is your paycheck. But you don't get your paycheck just by getting the job. You get your paycheck by showing up for work every day. And by continuing in what you were called into, you see? It's a lot like that for Christians. When you, when you come to know Jesus Christ, when you come to this right belief in Jesus as God, that's just merely the beginning, you see? And, and, and you got to keep showing up to work. you got to keep showing up every day to live into what God's called you into if you want to receive your paycheck, which is, as John says, it's eternal life. As for you, he says in verse 24, see that you, what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. See, did you notice all the ifs that John gives us? He, he doesn't just throw out this idea that becoming a Christian is something that you are because your parents were. Or that you just sign a card one day or you join the Methodist church when you move to town. And now you never have to go back or you, you got baptized or you went through confirmation or you checked a box at a revival service someplace or you prayed a prayer at camp and therefore you're just done now because you did that. There's a stark contrast between that type of understanding and what John's talking about. See, John isn't talking about a one-time experience or a one-time decision. John is talking about a lifestyle of righteousness, a lifestyle that reflects the truth about Jesus lived in your life. It's a completely different thing. He says you can have all these great promises, you can have all this great hope, you can have it guaranteed to you if, if you remain in Jesus. And of course in John's Gospel, Jesus tells the disciples they must remain in Him, and in return He would remain in them. It's not how you start your faith that matters. It's how you finish. In fact, John says how you finish determines whether or not you really were sincere in the beginning. So I'm going to ask you a question. As you consider your own faith journey, your own faith experience, have you focused more on how it began rather than where you are today? Is your discipleship more about what you did than what you are doing. Consider that. John's admonition is to keep the faith, to not be led astray, to stay strong, and not be carried away by the world. Keeping the faith is just as important as getting it. Number three. John says this. 
forget about trying to win the world's approval. You just got to forget that right now. Because as we've heard from John and as we've heard from Jesus, if you think that you can do what Jesus couldn't do, namely win God's approval and the world's approval, then maybe you ought to be Jesus. Because that's not what he could do. And, that's, and, and we're crazy if we think that's what we can do. But it never ceases to amaze me how many Christians, how many churches seem to think that that's the goal. To, to, to worship God and get the world to go, wow, they're amazing. Wow, I want to be just like them. You have to understand something. Read what John said. He said the world is, the world is, is living in sin. Jesus said they're going to hate you because they hate me first. So we've got to let go of this idea that as the church, our job is to win the world's approval. It it won't happen. If it does happen, maybe it shows that we've let some things go. Because honestly, this is where I see a a lot of churches fall apart. It's easy for us because we want to grow and we want to be a place where people want to be. And it can get real easy as a church to start thinking, well, what do we have to do? To make the world think that we're relevant, or that we're cool, or that we're, we're, you know, we understand what's going on in society. Oftentimes churches become so worried about being accepted by the world that they're willing to throw out the truth of Jesus just so the world will approve of them. I remember back in the 80s when the megachurch movement was starting to really crop up real big. There was this big idea that if you really wanted to see a church grow in a big way, you needed to not have anything religious in the church, right? So get rid of the cross, because that's offensive to people. You don't want anything to look too churchy. You know, like in our building project, we've had people say things like, hey, we want to make sure our church looks like a church, okay? Well, in the 80s, it was the exact opposite. Maybe even in the 90s a little bit too. It was, what can we do to make our churches not look like churches? You know, let's, let's take away the names. Let's call our pastors other stuff. Let's, let's, you know, make, get rid of the religious language. Let's get rid of the religious imagery so that we can, and make sure our message is, is altered so that it becomes more of something that can be related to by people who don't care about God. And what you saw were entire movements of churches that, jettisoned the very things that make us who we are as Christians. But make no mistake, that that continues to this day. Because there are buildings that look a lot like churches that have done the same thing. Maybe not in in the symbols that they have, but certainly in the message that they preach and in the gospel that they no longer declare. Because they don't want the world to look down on them. We have to let go of this idea. We have to let go of trying to win the world's approval. We have to let go of picking up whatever cause of the week is out there in the world and making that our cause so that the world would go, all right, they're for us. You know, you see it in all kinds of places. We must be careful. It doesn't happen to us. Forget about trying to impress anyone in this world. You know, it's, 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 it's tough to do. Because we live our own lives, don't we? And we go out into the world and, you know, you can just get beat up for being a Christian in this world. I remember talking to some of our high school kids about this. And I was like, you know, why is it so hard for you guys to express your faith to your friends in school? I'm like, what's the big deal? 
And they said this to me. Oh, Pastor Keith, you know, it's not like it was when you were back in school in the olden days. You know, back, in the, back when you were in school in the olden days, you know, people probably thought it was okay to be a Christian. It's not for us. If you go to school now and you tell people that you're a Christian, you're going to be called stupid. You're going to be called a hater. You're going to be called dumb. You're going to be called all sorts of bad things. And you're going to be like looked down upon. And you know what? That's just the way it is, isn't it? If you say you're a Christian in this world, immediately people are going to criticize you and, and put you down and, and say all things about you that, that, are, that probably aren't even true. And they're going to judge you and condemn you. So church, therefore, should be a refuge from all that, shouldn't it? It should be the place that you come to be encouraged and built up in the gospel and strengthened when you lock arms with one another, ready to go into the world and boldly proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. But sadly, even among church leadership, it's, it's oftentimes the opposite. Most of the fighting that I see amongst Christians happens amongst Christian leaders. And oftentimes, it's because we get caught up in our pet causes, depending on who we are. We must be careful that we don't allow that to happen to us. Because here's the deal. If you do somehow win the world's approval, it's not going to last very long. You'll wind up offending them some point. The closer you get to Jesus, you'll see that. Number four. Number four, the ultimate proof of discipleship is holiness and love as defined by Jesus. Holiness and love as defined by Jesus. And I had to put that last little bit in there, as defined by Jesus, because there's a whole lot of people going around with different ideas about what love is, especially in the church. And both, both ideas say we should love people. It's just we disagree what love can be sometimes. So I want to make sure that what we understand love is, is defined by what John says, and that's God. God is love. And here's the awesome thing about this. When we look at Jesus, we see both an unchanging standard of love, and we see an example of it at the same time. Isn't that helpful? You know, how many of you, it's, it's hard to understand a concept if someone just explains it to you, as, as, you know, dryly in what it is. But when you get an example, then you can go, oh, now I get that. Well, well here's our example. Romans 5.8 says this. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the example of love. Jesus laid down his life for us. Think about what that means. Think about the, how that defines love. Love, you see, is defined as self-sacrifice, not self-indulgence. Understand that. Understand that. Love is self-giving. Love is defined not by what we think. Love is defined by God because God is love. If we don't have a solid definition of love, then how are we to know what it means to be loving? And for Christians, our definition of love is God himself. Now, I know that can get tough sometimes, can't it? Because it can be tricky when you have to apply that in everyday circumstances. Because there are certain circumstances where it's hard to understand what the loving thing to do is. But remember, if you let the guiding principle for your love be self-sacrifice, 
rather than self-indulgence, it'll, it'll start to become clear. For example, is it loving to give a drug addict drugs because they really, really want it? Is that loving? Is it loving to, to enable someone to live a lifestyle that hurts them? Is it loving to control someone by making them dependent upon you? Is it loving to know the truth and not say anything? Is it loving to tell someone the first thing that comes to your mind, whether it's kind or not? See, how are we to know what love really is? Some say, well, it's just about how you feel. You've got to follow your heart. But man, our, our feelings change often, don't they? But God never changes. When we let love be defined by God, the standard and example makes it clear. As we look to Jesus, He shows us what love truly looks like. Self-sacrifice. <clears throat> Next time you're in a situation where you're trying to decide what the loving thing to do is, follow that example of whatever is, is more modeling self-sacrifice rather than self-indulgence. <clears throat> Number five. True Christians do not continue in sin. Now, I know when, when, when Mike read that in, in 1 John, every time I read that verse in 1 John, it, it makes me nervous because I go, wait a second. Are you trying to tell me that I'm not a Christian unless I'm, like, perfect and never sin? Because if that's the way it is, I, I'm toast. You know, anybody with me on that? If, 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 that's depend, if my Christianity is dependent on my, my perfection, I'm, I'm, I'm dead meat. But here's what we have to recognize. According to John, Christians make their goal to avoid sin so they can serve God. Christians desire to conform their lives to Jesus' commands. That's got to be our lifestyle. We've got to walk around with this mindset of, I, I don't want to sin. I, I, I don't want to do what God doesn't want me to do. I, I want to obey Jesus. I want to walk in the truth. Oftentimes, I've learned that if we start with that the grace of God gets us the rest of the way. None of us do it perfectly. That's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus came. However, make no mistake, God's grace does not give us a license to sin. We can't just say, oh, well, I'm just a, I'm just a human. That means I'm just going to do whatever. It's not how it works. The question I'll ask people often was they're arguing with me that, well, I just can't help it. I'm a person. I'm not perfect as an excuse I'll ask him this question, and I'll, I'll ask it to you today. Can you name for me one sin that you have to commit? Think about it. Can you name one sin that you have to commit? You don't have a choice. You just have to do it. There's no way you can avoid it. I, I suspect that you can't. Because sin, sin involves an assent of your will. It involves a choice. It involves volunteering yourself to do something. And the Bible tells us plainly that in Christ, we've been set free from that. I'm not saying that we'll be sin-free in our lives, but sin should not be our way of life. That's the idea here. John says those who will continue in sin. If you claim to be a Christian and your lifestyle is a, a lifestyle of unrepentant, unashamed 
continuance in sin. You know, John would question your faith. As Paul says in Romans 6 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Jesus came not just to save us from the penalty of sin, but to set us free from the power of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin anymore. I'm going to read to you a few verses from Romans chapter 6. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin which leads to death or to obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That's incredibly freeing when you think about the attitude that many of us have about our sin. Oftentimes we can feel very discouraged and ashamed when we look at our lives and go, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm awful, I'm horrible, I'll never get any better. The, the scripture tells you, no, no, you live in God's grace. God empowers you. You should be a slave to Jesus, not a slave to your sin. You've been set free. We can oftentimes feel discouraged or ashamed when we look at our lives. Out of control or lost when we think about the things that that overcome us. We can feel hopeless and helpless. But remember this. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And as a child of God, our dad can beat their dad. You've got to remember that. The next time temptation comes to you, just remember this. You don't have to go with it. You don't have to go with it. Now lastly, number six. John wants us to know this. God is merciful even when we condemn ourselves. Even when we condemn ourselves. Pastor Mike read this in chapter 3, verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our, our hearts at rest in His presence. Remember, that's the goal, to have rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. When He says, if our hearts condemn us, He's talking about those times when you feel like your failures are so great that God couldn't even forgive you. He's talking about those, those, that period of time when you feel just like, oh, How could God even love someone like me? I can't forgive myself. You know, this is what it's talking about. What John is saying is it really doesn't matter if you can forgive yourself. Because you don't judge yourself. You don't have the the power to judge yourself. The one who judges you is God. So really, you can feel as bad about yourself as you want. If God approves of you, you're going to be okay. You can feel as ashamed and unforgiven as you want, but if God says you're forgiven, then that's what matters. So, so live in that. And then you go, wow, well, if my heart doesn't condemn me, then think of what we have. 
God knows everything. And even though he knows everything about you, and even though he knows everything about me, the Bible says his mercy is new every morning. There is no sin you could bring to him that he could not forgive. There's no distance so great he will not cross to get to you. Remember, God loved the prodigal son who returned. Jesus saved and did not condemn the woman who was caught in adultery. And Jesus even prayed for the Romans who were in the very act of crucifying him. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Can you imagine a more powerful advocate for you than Jesus Christ himself? And yet that's who we have. Jesus is our advocate. As we read just three weeks ago, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. That same Jesus who prayed for the soldiers who killed Him prays for you today. And if He says you are forgiven, then no matter how you feel, you are forgiven. So don't let the devil hold you down. Don't let yourself be led astray by guilt and shame. Don't let yourself be led astray by the belief that, oh, I just have to sin because I'm a person. Don't let yourself be led astray by a wrong idea of who Jesus is. But rather, seek the truth and remain in it. Let's pray. Lord, that's our heart's desire this morning, is to seek the truth that you bring to us and remain in it completely. Lord, let us not be people who are hearers of the word only, but Lord, help us to be doers, to live our lives in righteousness. And to walk into this world not fearing it, but Lord, standing firm, knowing that we have a community with which we can lock arms and be strengthened by. So help us, Lord, to not be condemned by our own hearts, but to hear the voice of Jesus advocating for us as we seek to make our lives not one of sin, but one of righteousness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a look at this video.